0: Hello and welcome back to WA Real, I'm your host Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and guide you to take action to be all you can be. Today we're going to consider and explore life on an atomic level with physicist Professor Igor Bray. Originally born in Leningrad USSR, Igor moved to Adelaide in 1972 at the age of 11. He then moved to Perth in 2001. Graduating from the University of Adelaide with a PhD entitled Gravitational Lens Effects of Galaxies and Black Holes, Eagle has held numerous positions before becoming Head of Curtin's Department of Physics and Astronomy in 2010. He ranks in the top few in the world in the field of atomic and molecular collision physics and is responsible for several major paradigm shifting research breakthroughs during his career. In 2017, after publishing more than 450 academic papers and presiding over research that attracted over 10 million in funding for Curtin University, Igor was recognised by his peers with an election to the Australian Academy of Science. Igor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that (laughs) wonderful introduction. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. So um, one of the things I like to start with in in my conversations is um, understand how people found their way to Western Mm -hmm. Australia. But before we start with Western Australia, obviously you were originally born in the USSR, Russia. Yes. Yeah. How did you find your way from there to Australia, particularly yeah. in
1: 1972? Yeah, indeed. It's a, a, unfortunately somewhat of a traumatic story, and uh, uh, my uh, father and mother uh, were divorced. Uh, not that I knew it, because we still lived in the uh, single. A flat that had just now two rooms, and I wasn't aware of any of uh, the issues. But the next thing I know is that uh, my mother m- married an Australian, a musician. So my mother was teaching English at a uh, Russian university. Well, uh, in uh, Leningrad, uh, now it's called Saint Petersburg. And um, uh, so whenever there were Westerners and uh, coming through, she was part of the Russian English Friendship Society and she would take them around uh, then Leningrad uh, to show them the beautiful buildings and that's how they met. So he was a musician uh, and his name is uh, Alan Bray and uh, he was the principal clarinet player of the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra. Anyway, they met, they fell in love, decided to get married. And um, I was oblivious to all this and uh, but the next thing I know is that uh, uh, we' are heading for Australia it was just I was utterly stunned and I uh, you know later you know, of course, a lot of things had to happen in the background and uh, uh, while this was a fantastic outcome for me, it was a rather tragic outcome for members of my family in the background, which i' only found out about uh, at the later stage but you know, not dwelling on that sort of uh, past, um, so I came to Adelaide in 1972, as you said, and I had to learn English, and uh, uh, it was, you know, I really found what it's like to go from being a really popular kid to whom words come very easily uh, to complete stranger and absolutely unable to communicate uh, with my uh, peers or or anybody, uh, apart from my mother, and uh, it was a very sort of traumatic and difficult period. But as with most things, what doesn't kill you is good for you. (laughs) So for my personality, it's probably just what I needed, because I got to see how difficult life can be for those who are not so fortunate. So I was still good at maths and science, and uh, I went studied that at school. And uh, um, you know, I heard there was a, a course called mathematical physics at the age of 15, and I knew it was for me. And so that's how I got into uh, sort of mathematics and uh, physics. And uh, at every stage, doors kept on opening for me. Right. And so, I, from having once having come to Australia, you know it was like cam- coming to a paradise, and just where more than that, it's just there were always people there who somehow looked after your interests and supported you all the way through. And um, you know, I can give you a long story, but you know, eventually I ended up uh, you now with a PhD, as you described in the. A very different area to where I work now, and that's a really interesting story as to how I ended up in in other areas. Uh, But uh, eventually I got married. Uh, I married a girl, Anne, from uh, Adelaide, and we had uh, two children. And uh, through work we ended up finding ourselves in Perth in 2001. And uh, it's a most wonderful place uh, to live, to raise a family. And to do a, uh, you know, fantastic stuff with wonderful people around me. Do mm. you see yourself staying here?: some time. Oh yes, yeah. So it was interesting. When we came, which is something that really surprised us, people asked us in Western Australia, "How long are you coming for?" And this was a rather unique and uh, a, a sort of environment. because somehow I didn't expect you to stay. And Anne had a beautiful response, and she said, "We've come here for good." right and um and it turns out it was literally true as, <laughs> as well as uh you know symbolically yeah. uh, uh, true is that um you know we've we've raised our children here I mean there were four and six when we came, uh but they certainly feel part of uh, you know, western australia and uh, and I tell all of the students uh, that uh, you know Perth is the most beautiful, wonderful place to raise a family, but it is your base to be successful on the world stage. That's interesting, yeah. why is that? Well um, first of all you know, for those people who have travelled the world, they will readily understand what I mean by saying that uh, you know, Perth is the most wonderful place to raise a family, um, other people will take it a bit for granted, but our isolation that historically was problematic with the internet the age of the Internet. It is far more advantageous than problematic because you can take the time to get things done. Mm. And uh, I'm not overwhelmed like my colleagues in Europe or United States. They've got so many conferences and meetings and these are wonderful exciting things but you don't get things done whilst you're busy you know, traveling and talking. You just have to find that right balance. And because I am, you know, people understand if I say no to an invitation to go to somewhere, because I've been traveling, I don't want to travel, you know, to Europe or United States, you know, at most more, more than three times a year. You know, you know roughly twice is, is about optimal for us. So, um, and that means I have to be here making sure the department runs well and have most wonderful people to work with and I couldn't do my job without them. Uh, But you have to pay attention and address problems when they arise, and if you're absent, you can't do that. And I love my research. I love working with my students. And you have to be here to do that. So to be a scientist, uh, Perth is an ideal place. Right. I like that. Yeah.
0: Um, Just going back, how long did it take you to actually feel comfortable with English, having moved here?
1: Uh well I guess one of the things I'm fairly proud of, so I came at the age of eleven, which was halfway through grade six. Yeah. By the end of grade seven I had an A in English. <laughs> However, that A was a more of an academic A, not a conversational A. Right and uh, so for a long time as any immigrant would know it is impossible to understand the spoken English on television or in films uh, because it's just, just too quick and I would say that conversationally I felt more comfortable after about two years but in written form to write things it's a lifelong activity I make the case that Communication is the most important skill for any human being, in any field. Uh, but it is a lifelong uh, development, and uh, I have to write well. Uh, so the logic is fairly clear, but I'll still get the As and the Zs sometimes in the wrong place. Yeah, because I'm just not a native English speaker, mm. um, and um, that will always be. A little a uh, hurdle for me, but um, it has not been. So it would have been sort of debilitating uh, through high school years. I remember um, not understanding questions in mathematics because of the language, Right. and uh, I would I developed a skill to say, well, I understand the context in which this question is being phrased. I wonder if what would be an interesting mathematical question to ask in this context, and I would answer what I think <laughs> the question might be. Right. And sometimes I would be answering the right question, sometimes <laughs> the teacher would say, but that's not what I asked. I said, I'm oh, sorry, I couldn't take yeah, it out. <laughs> a perfect answer to a different question. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, you know, those things I remember very clearly. Yeah. And do you still speak Russian now? Or? Uh, not very well. Um, it's it's language, if you imagine how you would speak at the age of 11 English, but then not have any practice for yes. 30, 40 years, uh, then uh, you can understand you will have forgotten some and it's language of yeah. a child. Uh, so there's no sophistication to it. But I have been back uh, to, uh, you know, Back to uh, St. Petersburg, Moscow, parts of Ukraine. So I still have family there, and after uh, you know several days, I can get back into conversational yeah. uh, Russian. Uh, no chance of uh, reading or writing. Well, reading is not so bad, but writing, no chance.
0: Yeah. yeah. So that must lead you in an interesting place then, having started life speaking one language and then moving to another, and yeah. neither of them ever really bedding in and seeing them through your informative years of Yes,
1: yeah. I remember a particular moment in my life when I was forgetting Russian and had very poor knowledge of English. I said to myself, I have no language. It's it's very confronting. Hmm. I could not express myself in any language. It wasn't sophisticated enough in English and I had English speakers around me. And it certainly I didn't have the Russian development to express any sophistication either, so that was a very confronting uh, time. It didn't last that long, yeah. uh, of course, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the lesson learned uh, was invaluable. Mm. Humility really teaches you, a, you know, a real understanding for those who are in a similar uh, position, and around the world around us, there's many people in that situation mm. and I was lucky, I was 11 you Now, what about you know, a you know, middle aged or later person uh, changing uh, you know, uh, languages or uh, being in a different country it must be much more difficult So what was it about um, maths and physics that drew you in? Um, I think I'm wired that way, in all honesty right. um, I, um, I always loved it So it's not simply I'm good at it. I love it. I get excited. My teachers from school will remember me exclaiming in the middle of their derivation when I would see where they're going. And I'd say, oh, that's brilliant. And say, well, I haven't finished yet, (laughs) right? Uh, It's just, it's me. Mm. And I have learned that then I'm not the only one, uh, of course, uh, who has this real love and passion. For uh, the mathematics, I am wired that way, in a both rational side and emotional side. Right. I just enjoy it so much, and it's somewhat similar to sport and music. I love my sport. I love my music. Right. Uh, I am really wired well for maths and science. I'm not as well wired for music, as uh, my wife, who has almost perfect pictures of a, a violinist. Or my musical family. My mother was a a musician as well as a teacher of English. Mm. Her mother and grandfather were musicians, but I gathered that they must have learned early on that I didn't have the musical ear that was commensurate with what was expected in the family. So I was encouraged to go out and play soccer. So, uh, you know, one of my greatest achievements is to play for South Australia against Victoria. Centre forward for state high schools Excellent. in 1978. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but um, but I've always really loved uh, you know most things that I, I did, and uh, and I encourage uh, my students uh, now to have this balance of life between the, now many of them are wired to be very very good at maths and physics. But I assure them that their maths and physics will do so much uh, better for the sport they play and the music that they engage with as well to form a more complete um, uh, approach to life. Yes. Yes. So, um, just give us a potted history of how you then went from school to university to PhD. Yeah. Okay. So um, the high school that I went to is Unley High, and uh, funnily enough, uh, Julia Gillard, uh, ex Prime Minister, was in the same class. Okay. <laughs> right, and as is, uh, uh, as was my wife, uh, but though a- a- Anne and I went uh, out together in uh, at the university, uh, but uh, the love for the maths and the physics, and you know, a lot of it was uh, nurtured by my teachers at Unley High. I'm you know, forever grateful uh, to them, uh, and they were the ones who made me aware of mathematical physics being available at the University of Adelaide. So at the age of 15 I knew this was for me. Uh, so I went to Adelaide Uni and I studied you know, mathematics, computer science, uh, physics, I uh, did a bit of logic and philosophy also wonderfully useful uh, subjects to, to complement uh, the other um, more technical uh, subjects and um, I found it quite challenging at the beginning because at school I had never learned to study. I had learned to play soccer, I was quite good at that, but I didn't know that you actually had to study before you turned up for an exam. It just things came fairly natural to me. Well that didn't work at university. I discovered that uh, I would do half the paper in the time available, I'd get Almost a hundred percent, but then there was half the exam paper that wasn 't done, yeah, so i 'd get relatively low marks at uh, at the beginning of my studies and then I realized, well, what do other people do and Apparently, people studied before exams and through the uh, through the semester, so I developed a good work ethic you know, learning from uh, my peers who were doing much better, and then my grades came up to distinctions uh, uh, as well. And I studied Mathematical Physics. I did my uh, PhD in that area because uh, I loved it. And um, uh, then, um, well, sort of the world opened up. And I keep saying to also to my students that uh, uh, in life you have to be opportunistic. You never know what interesting opportunity will arise. But if you're good at things, something definitely will. And the big challenge is to deal with the options that are made available for you. Um, and Because it's destabilizing. You know, you think you have a path, yes. and then something out of left field yes. comes up and says, oh, here's an opportunity. And in fact, my job now is to create, I say to the students that my job is to unlock as many doors for you as I possibly can. Your job is to choose which one you want to walk through. Yes. Uh, And so, now I engage with industry companies They say they want to have access to our students. We have brilliant, fantastic students. Uh, And uh, industry is very, very fortunate to get access to them. Uh, Some will want to go in more academic areas of physics, some will want to go into industry, some will go to uh, government uh, areas. So all of these things you know all of these opportunities will arise and this is what happened to me. Mm -hmm. I was doing one thing suddenly another opportunity came along to go to a different university. We're still in Adelaide but they were looking for somebody uh, to be a research assistant. Uh, I only found out about this opportunity through a friend. Um, I investigated it, I got the job. I was doing that I already had an opportunity to go to Tucson, Arizona through a postdoc because of the people behind you no know, you know without my asking, people organized jobs for me in the United States um I even got a phone call from the United States saying uh, that the offer is in the mail. I was warned that you know my wife is an alien, so she's formally not allowed to work but you know but they will fi- probably find uh, something for her. Well, it's a bit offensive for me calling my wife Yeah, an alien, I was you know? going to say that. So yeah. this, is, uh, you know, this is not a way to get into my good books. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, Anne is my best friend. Uh, she was a best friend when we got married. She's my best friend at thirty-five years later. Uh, often, you know, and um, so that that I said, well, okay, we organise for someone to stay in our house, but uh, one week passes, two week passes, nothing happens. Uh, out of the blue, another offer comes over. Uh, from the local university to change fields and be a postdoc, this is something you do after a PhD for five years they had resources to change fields to this quantum collision theory I came home and I said, well, you wouldn't believe it I've just been offered a five year position to stay in Adelaide and for a number of personal reasons you know, we hadn't notified our family as yet and I had a younger brother who sort of needed me a lot and I did some investigation, well who are these people, how good are they? And I found Mm. that they're one of the strongest groups in physics in all of Australia at the time. A nice balance of theory and experiment all in one place. So I decided to accept the offer because the one from the United States, not that I had seen it, Mm. uh, but I knew that it was like typical US, nine months uh, over the year, then the three months uh, you have to find your salary elsewhere and then potentially extension. Have uh, your wife called an alien? Yes, <laughs> and uh, but what turned out the reason it had not arrived on time is because the secretary in the United States did not know how to spell the word Australia. The offer was sent to Australia, not Austria, but to Australia. And so eventually, a month after the phone call, the offer did arrive and we could see that it went to Europe first, bounced around there for a while before they worked out it wasn't Austria, (laughs) it was actually Australia. So you know, one can make the case that if the offer had arrived typically a week later after it was sent, then I may have said to everybody that we're off to the United States being oblivious to the potential of uh, Mm. being able to remain in Australia. And um, because this group were a world-leading group in Australia, I realised that, you know, I wasn't going to be disadvantaged by staying in Australia working in this area of quantum collision theory. This was at Flinders University. And this decision we made around 1985-86. And so that's what changed me to that field. And from then on, I've had research-only appointments. So I've always had funding from the Australian Research Council. Right to have for my own salary. So not just uh, as a grant to, to work to, to do by, a, project. a project, but actually for my own uh, salary. And uh, that worked uh, wonderfully well for me until about the year 2000. And then one year, I was not successful with a particular uh, grant for a further uh, salary. And I was a bit upset about that uh, because you know that was essentially... A like a a catalyst for a like a midlife crisis, if you like. Right. Say, so what am I doing with myself? What is my life? Uh, you know, Where's it going? Uh, you know, at that time I have two children, and um, uh, and so you know, and I talked but very quickly, as other people found out that I was not successful on this occasion. I had opportunities to go to Melbourne or to ANU in Canberra, and my colleague in Perth quickly created a professorship position for me at that moment was at Murdoch University and um, uh, but they asked that you know I reapply and um, for this because it's very convenient for universities if the salaries of their staff are being paid by the Australian Research Council yes. rather than themselves of course and um, right. it turned out so we came to uh, Perth uh, um, yeah, basically the last day of or the last few days of August of two thousand and one, uh, and within three months of my arrival, the second time uh, I made this application, I had over a million dollars in research funding, but this time we didn't go to Adelaide and went to uh, Murdoch University at the time. and uh, look looking back at sense. Collision Theory? Yes, still looking at Quantum Collision Theory and this mm-hmm. is something that uh, we're still working on and it's a, you know, very very uh, it matches my personality because it is about doing things that are really useful and practical for society. I'm a person whose culture is that if the taxpayer is funding this wonderful lifestyle I must give back to the society. It is a delight. It is my pleasure. That's why I go to a lot of schools. I do a lot of outri- outreach activities and I tell them about how we turn the science that we're doing to practical outcomes for the benefit of all. Cool. So
0: tell us a bit about, this is a very open leading question, yeah. tell us a bit about quantum physics. Yeah. Um, I first encountered it when I watched the film "What the Bleep Do We Know?" Right. <laughs> um, since then, it, I've always had a bit of an interest in it, and mm-hmm. to be and to be completely transparent, mm. I have an A level in maths and physics mm-hmm. myself from back mm-hmm. in England, um, coupled with an A level in Latin. So right. There you go. Like, nice and logical, all three. Mm-hmm. Um, the bit I find particularly fascinating was this original, originally presented as the as the. The double, double slit.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: where the the electrons are passed through. Yes. The two slits. All right. And and out the back. Instead of, mm-hmm. you could probably describe this much better than I. Mm-hmm. But where scientists were expecting electrons to pass through these small little slits, these gates, and pop out at the back, like they would expect tennis balls thrown mm-hmm. through. Correct. And you you yeah. see a line at the back they found multiple lines across the back. Correct, yes. And therefore, yes. these electrons were moving in a in, mm. a in a wave format. Yes, yes. And then when they then mm-hmm. attempted to observe what was going on, mm-hmm. the electrons then acted like particles mm. and went through. Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole thing about when we are not looking mm. at electrons, mm. which are the nucleus of mm. you know atoms, which is what we're all and everything yeah. is made yeah. of, they act like waves, yeah. full of potential, mm. um, and then when we look at them, mm. they turn into something solid and material. Yeah, is that correct? Oh yes,
1: yes. So th- those those were indeed wonderful experiments, and uh, uh, at once, you know, difficult to uh, understand uh, using terminology that comes from everyday experience, but for uh, for scientists, uh, once. You know, they get used to working at that quantum level that delightful and very interesting aspect of, uh, of these you know, particles such as photons behaving like either a wave or a particle and even electrons behaving like a wave or particles that is something that we are comfortable enough uh, with however there are aspects of quantum mechanics that have no explanation and it may be a little bit difficult to uh, to get them across. But these ideas, uh, you know, such, such as superpositions of particles being in more than one state at once, are the reasons that we are going to uh, hopefully have quantum computing coming along. Mm. And some of the issues of entanglement that uh, somehow, uh, you know, I use the term correlated randomness. and we have no uh, universally acceptable uh, explanation for these phenomena that can mm. be measure- measured. And so, for the everyday
0: person who's mm-hmm. listening to this, mm-hmm. give us a brief introduction to what? Entanglement
1: and superposition. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, the idea so, people are familiar with the ordinary computer and that you have either a zero or a one. Okay? Well, Uh, with a computer with superposition a a state can be in a combination of zero or one. So there's somehow more information is possible rather than these two extremes. Mm. And you can take advantage of that. You can create special algorithms that can take advantage of that and using those algorithms you can decode Uh, cryptography, all of those things can open up Uh, you can decode large prime numbers into its factors. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are special techniques that can take advantage of this idea of uh, superposition. as it doesn't make much sense Uh, and the act of observing, it's an interesting point forces it into either zero or one. But if you don't make that observation then you can work with the fact that there's an a supposition of those, both those states. So, we're actually going to make computers that yes. in effect. Do yeah. That. So, the Australian of the Year is Professor Michelle Simmons for 2018. And uh, she's a quantum mechanic uh, like myself. And she is, uh, and her group are building a, um, you know, a silicon based, you know, they, they uh, put uh, phosphorus atoms inside silicon based media. To try and create these qubits and take advantage of quantum, uh, um, what they create, what I call qubits, not ordinary bits, zero or one, but they call them qubits for quantum bits, to try and take ad- and create a supercomputer uh, based on that idea. But again, that part is also not so bad. The really awkward part is this idea of entanglement. So, what is entanglement? So, entanglement. Uh, so, let me. Perform the thought experiment to see if that comes across um, okay. in audio. So, if you start off with say something like a helium atom, helium atom is a very inert atom. has two electrons, yeah, uh, going round and round, and those electrons are entangled in the sense that the total spin of those state must be zero because by Pauli principle, um, uh, Pauli exclusion principle. That's the only possible way those two electrons, one spin has to have spin up and the other ones must be have spin down, so the total that, spin is zero. That's why they're going around, yeah. The they're going around and it's bound to, very yeah. tightly bound. Might their helium. own business as a ex- helium ex- atom. Exactly, right? You come in with a photon and it's sufficiently energetic that both electrons go out. So, so, so you have double ionisation. It's called no, double photoionization. Mm and you can measure the spin of either electron and if you were to measure the spin of one of those electrons it will be completely random, up, down, up, down, up, down you cannot in any way predict what that measurement will be you can also measure the spin of the other electron it will be up, down, up, down, up, down you have no idea what it will be and, uh, but you can also do that in coincidence so you measure them together now, when you do something in coincidence, you can say that even the speed of light, so that course cannot reach from one to the other because you do it at the same time. Yes. Okay? If something's at the same the speed time... speed of light moves. Yeah, because it it's at time. the same time, or, you know, in practice, within the yeah. small delta, right? So, but if they're doing far enough apart, then even light cannot travel from one side to the other in the time to make the measurement. Yeah. But if you've measured one to be up, the other one will be down. So you can say, well, if each one is random, how come you have this correlation? And it's a fixed correlation. And it's a fixed, and it doesn't matter how far apart. So these electrons remain entangled as so long as nothing else interferes with them. Yes. Until that measurement. And no one can really have a good explanation for this. So in quantum mechanics, you now we often say that no self-respecting quantum mechanic, and I'm one will say they understand quantum mechanics. Right. And we also followed up with that if you don't understand what you're doing, don't worry, just calculate. Just (laughs) calculate. Right? So, we know how to do the calculations. We know how to get things right in terms of comparison between calculations and experiment. But, you just but don't we know, don't know, understand why, how that is possible.
0: So let me get this straight: you can have these two electrons that you split, mm-hmm. and they were originally had this relationship around a helium atom. You then split them, and they can be, God knows how far apart. Yes. And this relationship between when one spins up, mm-hmm. the other one will spin down. Mm-hmm. And if that was to change, then they would both change. Yeah. And this happens immediately. Yeah, the iris- moment you
1: perform the measurement,
0: the moment you perform
1: the measurement, But measurement, iris- this one it determines the outcome of this one, you're also determining the outcome of one yeah. that is so far away. At the so time, so it could be the even, other end of it. Could be at the other end of the universe, if you like. Yes, right. Uh, of course, in practice, we can't do that. But, but with our modern technology and extraordinary timing, like you know, what people are familiar with atomic clocks that can. Get things you know have an accuracy within a few seconds within the age of the universe, yes, when you can have that kind of timing, we know that we are able to determine the outcome of an object that it is superluminally separated, yes, meaning that even the speed of with speed of light could not have got there in time to make that outcome so that means there is a relationship between them there's two. a constant relationship between them, but but, the, out, but the aspect of measuring it measuring one of them, determines the outcome of the other. Mm. This is irrespective of time and space. Yeah. Which then
0: takes us away... Which (laughs) then takes us away from the stuff we've been told
1: at school Mm. about time and space being very
0: rigid structures.
1: Well, it's not so much... Well, I don't know about uh, rigid structures. uh, uh, It's just that it's something we can't get our heads around. We We like to relate everything to our everyday experience using our everyday language yes. but this is a reality of a behaviour at that subatomic level that can be measured right? this is experimental no theorist yeah. predicted that this will be happening Yeah. Right. it is experimentally observable and uh, as mathematicians we have to come up with a theory that does so and we have, no problem we can the do theory? this mathematics, well, it's yeah. quantum, quantum yeah, mechanics. Yeah. But if we want to try and explain, in you know, we believe that we cannot, uh, you know, if, that causality is can only happen between events that at least can be connected by speed of light. That's what we believe. We have yeah. you know, s- special and general relativity depend on these on these fundamental concepts. But not quantum mechanics. In quantum mechanics, it's allowed. So what do we have to say? Well, if you were doing it in special in gravity, that's not allowed. But if you're doing it in quantum mechanics, it is allowed. Well, it's not very satisfying. Yeah. Right? But
0: it's what it is. So this. So now I can understand why this would be a very exciting place to go and work.
1: Well, it is exciting in that regard, uh, but. You know, in the end, you have to do something that's useful. Yes. Right? So we don't take advantage of, int- of that entanglement necessarily, but we have to work at that quantum level uh, because the world around us is built from collisions and interactions on that atomic level. Yes. Now, we're sitting in this room right now, and above us is a fluorescent lamp. Now, that's a very efficient way of generating lamp. It's just electron colliding with mercury atoms. And it so happens we have the world's best theory and we worked with Ozram Sylvania who gave us you know, real US cash to do the calculation to give them all of the interaction information in order to maximise the efficiency of your standard fluorescent lamp. Yep. Yeah? That's one application. Uh, now we're in the area of even cancer treatment. So there will be something that Australia will be doing for the very first time uh, it was announced in the last year's May budget of building Australia's first what's called proton therapy facility and the idea is to bombard a, a tumours in the body with protons. Um, and Why? Because those protons can deliver their destructive energy just to the tumour without the usual side effects you'll get from standard radiation treatment which damages healthy cells as well as the cancerous ones. Yes. So our job will be to calculate the stopping power of protons in uh, uh, molecules of biological relevance. And this is very exciting because if you were, you know, any of your listeners to Google proton therapy, they will come across amazing stories of uh, uh, children whose brain cancer has been cured by this process. Uh, who otherwise would have undergone kind of radio uh, therapy or you know, radiation uh, therapy treatment that would lead them leave them blind or deaf yeah. but instead actually cured with no side effects it 's amazing so it 's actually extraordinary mm. and so australia'm uh, uh, coming to this uh, a little bit later than say japan or or, or Europe or united states but uh, nevertheless it 's coming to Australia as well. Mm. Uh, so that's you know, another sort of the other the two rather extremes. We also work in astrophysics with a lot of astronomers and uh, you know what, people can understand that you know the world around us is made from very small particles and they are interacting, colliding all the time. So, so there are, there is no shortage of uh, really interesting application mm. that benefit from a quantitative knowledge of those kind of collisions.
0: How does um things like we you know we were just talking about the entanglement and 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 as you've just rightfully said uh, our whole ev- everything around us is made from these small collisions etc 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 how does that change or shape your view of reality and everything that goes on around us for, on a personal level
1: mm yes so i um i very much i don't separate my life into work and non-work yes uh I am I define myself basically by the people I have around me my family first and foremost my friends and colleagues and the work that I do it is all connected you know nothing is well this is work this is play this is you know I do you know, I love my sport I love to play golf I love the company of golfers who don't take it too seriously we joke around <laughs> yeah. and mess around and it's all good fun. I love music, I love to play, I love to listen. Uh, uh, but all of it, it's all of those things together uh, make me who I am. And I say to others that I'm a better scientist for all the music and the sport and my social relationships and vice versa. Everything. Supports everything else, so I equally I have a public lecture entitled "The Physics of Life, Universe, and Everything," with apologies to um, uh, uh, the, oh, uh, name escapes me uh, uh, to the, or Douglas Adams, you know, yes. the wonderful uh, yes. book of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So his answer to the ultimate question of life, <laughs> universe, and everything was 42. 42, yeah. My answer is physics. Yes. Right. And so I do see the world and try to understand human behaviour and uh, even organisational structures. I'm saying that everything follows laws of physics. For example, uh, you know, I ask students, where do laws of physics come from? Is it because the physics professor says this is what it is? Well, no. <laughs> the physics professor has no choice. But that plays no role in the matter. Physics laws come from symmetry principles. So, for example, st- we teach students conservation of momentum. We don't say, why? Why is it momentum that's conserved? Why not the square of momentum? You know, or, 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 or something, uh, something else. Yeah. You know, mass times velocity is momentum. Why that? Uh, why not m squared times v? Uh, and the answer is because momentum and space have this interesting reciprocal uh, relationship that if space is symmetric where the collisions took place then momentum will have been conserved and vice versa if momentum was conserved therefore space must have been sym- symmetric in that neighborhood. And then you look at humanity where the laws of humanity come from also from symmetry principles. Do unto others as you would have them unto you. It's just a statement of symmetry. Yeah. At the moment, there's a lot of discussion about gender equity. What is that about? Symmetry, male, female? Why have different rules? So the only difference with humanity is that for us it's a choice. It's a cultural choice. For much of humanity, we had slavery. Now, slavery is not symmetry. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The relationship between slave and master is very asymmetric. And in physics, we say that if you want to impose asymmetry, you can, but you have to provide a force. Yes. And how do you support slavery? Through violence. You provide a mechanism. It's not sustainable, right? You have to keep doing it. Eventually, some enlightened person says, maybe it's not nice to treat people that way. Yes. I wouldn't like it if it was done (laughs) to me. Yes. Right? It's a statement of symmetry. So I, um, I really like... Or at least I find it helpful for me to see the world through the eyes of a person who believes or whose culture is things happen for a reason due to understanding the forces in play. Yes. That's really important and makes me find find it easy to understand how organisations work. Where do the forces come from? What are the motivations of the individual pieces? That make that big puzzle that's called an organisation. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I find it very helpful to use the laws of physics and the ideas of physics to understand all aspects of the world around me, not just the physical aspects. Yes,
0: mm. that's fascinating. I like that. Yeah, certainly the the symmetry and as what like you said, you know, we might put ourselves into a state for a period of time, but it. If it's not our natural, balanced state, yes, it requires force. Mm. Mm. And it's interesting because I had a discussion with um, a podcast discussion with a lady who's a, a Jungian psychoanalyst, and mm-hmm. we talked about the duality of mm-hmm. life. And you know, we spent the first thirty, forty years of our life thinking, "I am this," mm-hmm. I am, but I'm not that, mm-hmm. and I am that, but I am not this. Mm-hmm and yet we're both, and yet we we like to create this identity for ourselves, and mm-hmm. then we came to the conclusion that around about the age of 35, 40 years, where people talked about midlife crisis or mm-hmm. midlife adjustment, it's very much that I've forced my mm-hmm. sense of identity into one area mm-hmm. because I might culturally yeah, like that. I've mm. been playing with life scripts, etc., yeah. cetera, etc., cetera. but now the force—I can't maintain the force any longer, and now it's time yeah. to snap back and consider that I am both things. Yeah. I am good. I am bad. Sometimes I'm generous. Sometimes I'm stingy. Yeah. Sometimes you know I'm a nice bloke. Sometimes a real grumpy. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I am both.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, look, it's a point, point well made, and uh, you know, for me that. Sort of quotes midlife crisis, which it wasn't really, but it's challenging to have to move your family from one city to another. And we had some, really, some friends here, very good friends, and so that that was fine, uh, but traumatic. It means moving away from your other friends and family, and uh, yes, but it allowed me to reinvent myself. So, for example, uh, because then now I had children, I'm a changed person for the fact that we had children. So when I came to WA. It made perfect sense to go to their schools, and engage with the teaching profession, and uh, the, you, know, you know, be out there, part of the education system, and pay attention to what was happening in the education system. And we had some challenges here in Western Australia uh, that were became rather hot political uh, topics, uh, but. I was at the forefront uh, there, mostly in a support role for the teachers of the day, mm. but teachers of physics and f- uh, fitch- teach- all teachers, in fact, right. it turned okay. out. Yeah, it's um, um, uh, but um, you know a lot of teachers were uh, being forced to do things they didn't believe in, uh, didn't think that education would be improved by. It was a rather traumatic uh, period. Uh, many teachers resigned and. Uh, we lost some of the jewels in the state, but others fought on. And we won. We won that battle, and it was, took a lot of people, but rather traumatic. But I didn't have to get engaged. But the lives of my children, and that's how we found out about it in the first place. Uh, yeah. For example, you know, a teacher said that in her class, uh, children were too young to learn to read, which we were somewhat surprised by, because we wanted, how do we support the teacher in uh, the reading stra- her reading strategies, but similar age class next door, that teacher was saying absolutely it's the right time to uh, get children to learn to teach, and with we all well, part of the you know so much of education system, is is logistics. You can't have you know, those two classes will then go on to the next teacher, yep. and half the teacher half the class Can would have learnt read. to start reading and the yep. others not. How is that possible? Yeah. So this new other system lost its organisational aspects, that were critically important to efficiency in the education system. So there's lots of uh, story, but the point was suddenly I found myself engaging in aspects of society that otherwise I wouldn't, because it was the right thing to do. It's that simple. Yes. But I chose to, and because I was relatively new with no history or baggage coming here, I said, this is what I want to do. And that's fine. So I did. That's, that's a bit of an advantage of not being able to redefine yourself and, yeah. and go through that midlife crisis and be somebody else in addition. Mm. So it wasn't at all a rejection of uh, who I was. Far from it. It was an enhancement. Mm. I was a more, I would say, responsible member of society because I was now... Together with my wife, raising a family. And of course, I project that onto other parents. So I'm there not just for my own children, but I'm there for the children of other parents. Mm. And, you know, in fact, the culture that I set in this department at Curtin is that teaching is the most important thing we do on par with raising our own children. And because many of my staff have young children of their own. They get it. Yeah, They understand that the primary purpose of a university is to raise the next generation of young people who will go and succeed on the world stage. Mm. That's what we are about. But that's not the only thing we do. It's like any parent. We love our children, but we can't be there all of the it's time like, just raising yeah. our children. Yeah, We have to have... Uh, your own pursuits pursuits and you have to bring in resources Mm. to the family so that you can feed them and shelter them all of those things so as you get older I think you know your sort of activities broaden Mm. and uh, I'm very comfortable with that there's also something there for me um, being a parent
0: of an 11 year old that when I do um, get to those golden moments with my daughter where we are um exploring, growing up, developing, et etc. Et that uh, and, and teaching, that at that moment, while she is taking something out of it, I too am taking something out of it and starting to understand things at a much deeper level that yes. I probably took
1: for granted. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's a good point. And I also, you know, it took me a little while to realize that as my children were growing, so was I. Yes. yes. Because my relationship with them necessarily needs to change, as they get older. You know, a baby is not the same as a toddler, not as the same as a young child, not as the same as a teenager. Now they're young adults, and yet we've always had a wonderful relationship, from the earliest times right through to them now. And the one's twenty-one, I was at twenty-two, and um, and uh, that's uh, I realised I have to change. I have to grow mm. as they grow, and it took me a little while <laughs> you know yes, to have to let go well they 're not three years old anymore mm. they 're not five years old, they make their own decisions now, and I, my job now is to support, discuss, not tell this is what you do or whatever, yeah, but engage in genuine conversation and seek you know uh, where they 're at you know, what what 's their world like because their world at this their age. Is not the same as my world was when I was their age. Yes. Right? And I have to you know, understand, you know, the social media of today, you know, at that age, when I was that age, there was no social media. There was nothing (laughs) there was no internet. Right? So it's a different world. And it's a world that I don't fully comprehend in the same way that they do. Yes. Right? So I have to learn. Indeed. And they keep me connected. There must be parallels between that and your job. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yes. it's all connected. It is yes. all connected. So all of life is about, you know, communication, uh, you know, and communication with the younger generation is so delightful. It's so energizing because they have so much energy. The world is, is belongs to them, right? They're about to step into it and take charge. And they're full of enthusiasm, idealism, and I hope that it will never get squashed. And uh, it's you know, my job is to nurture and to support them, uh, to see and to achieve the best that they can be. It was a lovely uh, line in your introduction. Yes,
0: mm. superb. If I could just ask, because I you know it's not every day I get to have a discussion with mm. <laughs> with a physicist like yourself, um, and just dive back into the physics a minute what um it's very big and leading question again but going back to the large um collider in Mm -hmm. switzerland right what what does that do and what does it continue to do because i remember it being Mm built and then i remember it not firing because there was certain aspects weren't yeah, didn't work
1: yeah, the, main, uh, the, the uh, superconducting magnets weren't working weren't quite working
0: and yet so there was a, big, a whole lot of furore then there wasn't and now I don't hear so much about
1: mm-hmm. it Yeah, uh, I don't know what stage so there's many aspects to the Large Hadron yeah. Collider I in fact have uh, I know uh, collaborators yes. there but it, what it is, it is known for is for super high energy collisions mm. so they can create the most energetic collisions here on Earth. Now these collisions are fairly commonplace out in the universe but out in the universe there are no detectors out yes. there to see what are the outcomes of these collisions. Here it's a very controlled uh, environment and you collide particles together at 0.9999 uh, speed of light and they break up and you can see all the constituents. So that's one aspect of what they do and uh, you know, they found the Higgs boson uh, roughly at the energy where they, you know, they thought there might be one, but something that was predicted uh, in the 60s, I think, mm-hmm. uh, by uh, Peter Higgs. And um, uh, they, uh, you know, it led to a Nobel Prize um, uh, for uh, Professor Higgs. And a uh, uh, you know, very exciting time, because there's many aspects. So physics is interesting. We start off trying to explain things on our everyday scale. And to do that, we sometimes go down in scale, sometimes go up in scale, try to understand everything. Jump you, up you, and yes, jump down. Yeah. So that's, that's our job, right? Our yeah. job is to understand things and uh, at all scales. But we find that as we get down to very, very small scales, we get a bit stuck. We don't quite understand it. Yeah. And We also know that if we go up into higher scales, again, we don't understand what's going on. And that's fine, you know, it's furthest away from our everyday experience. So we shouldn't be too surprised that it's going to take us a while to sort things out, you know, if, uh, you know, and when, uh, who knows. Um, So we build these like Large Hadron Collider as one example of uh, understanding the inner workings of things by colliding them and see what happens when they break up, up. right? And uh, one of the areas that I'm involved in is another aspect of the Large Hadron Collider is where they can make anti protons, they can create antimatter. Now, antimatter might sound a little bit exotic, but in fact, all of our hospitals have a thing called a PET scanner. PET stands for Positron Emission Tomography. Positrons are, is a bit of antimatter, an antimatter of an electron. It has exactly the same mass, but the opposite charge. When you put a positron and electron together, eventually they will annihilate and give out two gamma rays. And this is a mechanism that we actually use to detect cancer in bodies. It's a lengthy uh, story, uh, but very, very useful and uh, uh, a very important practical outcome of usage of uh, antimatter. And positron emission is very common. Uh, Lots of isotopes of potassium, every time you eat a banana, you'll get Potassium isotope in your body that will emit positrons. It's quite healthy, wonderful thing uh, But nobody understands why there are so many electrons and so very few positrons right. Or more generally why there is so much matter and so little antimatter Now it would have been very easy if we had no antimatter at all. Yes. We would never be even talking to each other about this right nothing to explain it wouldn't have been quite so uh, challenging if we had equal amounts of antimatter and matter because of the symmetries mm. involved. But having one by far overwhelming the other makes us the que- ask the question, why this much and not that much? Mm, especially so, given
0: what you are saying earlier on about symmetries.
1: Yes. So, so we have this problem called matter-antimatter asymmetry in the universe. So whoever sorts that out, Will win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> so there are people doing this, and we're part of that uh, group. And the goal is to measure properties of antimatter to see if we can find that asymmetry. So uh, at CERN, because they have um, so it's a large hadron collider is at uh, CERN mm. and uh, in Switzerland, and uh, it uh, they can create. Uh, anti protons so i talked about anti electrons but they can also create anti protons and when they create an anti proton they want to combine it with an anti electron or a positron to form an anti hydrogen atom right why so because it's, it's just it's the same thing but the charges are inverted exactly and why is that interesting because we know the properties of ordinary hydrogen atoms to 15 significant figures. Mm. That is the most accurate measurement yes. you could hope to ever make. Yes. So, if you can make the same measurement on antihydrogen, you may there's a real potential for finding difference in those 15 figures which yes. will then identify some asymmetry yes. between matter and antimatter. Well, our job is to find a collision process that will help create uh, and enough anti-hydrogen atoms mm. so that those measurements can be done to that level of precision. So we're working with a group and we had a number of uh, high profile pa- uh, papers on the subject and physical review letters and nature communications mm. and the kind of calculations we're providing. We are the only people on uh, on the planet who can provide that kind of accurate information. But furthermore, and in fact they've made now, uh, so about just over a year ago, there was a paper in Nature that said that they measured this particular property in anti-hydrogen to the first 10 significant figures. And they happen to be the same as the first 10 significant figures for hydrogen. Hydrogen. But there's still five more to go. go. And you have to make more anti-hydrogen. uh, that might sound uh, a little bit sophisticated, but there's a, even a simpler issue. Because we don't have a good uh, understanding of how to combine gravity with quantum mechanics, no one really knows how antimatter will behave under gravity. Right. Even that very simple question. If you drop an anti-hydrogen atom, what will happen? <laughs> Nobody knows. uh, (laughs) who knows now there is not really a plausible theory that says it should be like anti-gravity no but you have to perform the experiment and to perform the experiment again you have to make enough of this neutral anti because gravity is so weak compared to electric charge and magnetic uh, forces so you have to have neutral antihydrogen that's why you can't do it with positrons with antiprotons separately you have to bring them together to make a neutral atom to uh, neutralize any forces associated with electromagnetism so the only force left is gravity so you might want to just have a beam of slow moving antihydrogen atoms and watch do they fall? (laughs) do they go up? up. do they they stay stay straight? who knows? So again, so there's two, so there's two different Nobel prizes there. One's for matter-antimatter asymmetry, and one is about attempting to unify gravity and quantum mechanics. Mm. Can we do, do this? this. Um, so it's exciting f- from that side. So that's not so practical, if you like. Although there would be very practical applications for anti-gravity, <laughs> but of course uh, we don't really expect. But you have to do the experiment. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's the more sort of traditionally academically exciting aspects of the work that I do. Yes. Right. There's lighting. There's cancer treatment. There is uh, understanding. Uh, you know what happens out in the universe. Uh, and there's those things where you really have unknowns. Mm. So that's why I really enjoy the work that I do.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: With the people. Right, and that's people. one of the things, because that's the other thing I say to students. Choose a career by the people you want to spend your life with. I like that. Right? Because, you know, workplace is sort of like a, not a forced marriage, but sort of like an arranged marriage. You choose you yes. know, the people. And sometimes you don't you choose make the that job, choice. but not necessarily choose, the people around you. Do, yes. You know, so I say, no, start with the people. See, you know these are the people you will spend your life with are these and that's why my biggest job at university is to bring like-minded uh highly uh, high-performing students together to so that they will form lifelong relationships and they will choose careers to have a wonderful time mm. wonderful lives together supporting and pushing each other absolutely absolutely yeah so uh, that's why i love my job mm. What makes a good scientist? Yeah, and you know, it makes us... Uh, no, it's a, qu-
0: it's a question. What makes a good
1: scientist? Oh, what, what makes you? a good scientist? Well, all those things that I've said. You have to have good people around you. Mm. So people ar- good people around you bring the best out in you. Right? And I am wired to love maths and, and physics. So uh, you know, the, the, the raw potential was there. But that raw potential is there in many people and uh, you know, I think through biology and diversity uh, many of us have developed strengths in various areas that complement each other it takes many of us to a form a society I love the expression it takes a village to raise a, a child yes. very true, I I'm part of that village um, so the, I love the culture of science so uh, for example uh, the culture of science is that it doesn't matter who the participant is. I have friends all over the world of different nationalities, of different cultures, but we are unified by our pursuit of science. And that's a wonderful thing, it breaks down barriers, Mm. in a similar way that sport and music do. Music is international, sport is international, and so is science. And these mechanisms are great for breaking down needless boundaries. Humanity, has weaknesses in creating boundaries that are used to keep others away this is unfortunate and um, I think anything that breaks down those boundaries is a good thing so what i you know, you're back coming back to your question what makes a good scientist and that is strength across areas of A. being a good person B. to have the intellectual strength to address the complicated world that we live in. But with a culture of inclusion, uh, a culture of encouragement, those who are better than you, very important, right? and uh, encouragement for others to be successful. So one of the challenges for me has been, as I've grown into a more senior role, Is to enjoy success of my students and my colleagues ahead of doing things myself. Mm. That took a bit of adjustment. Yes. Right. Because put your ego
0: to one side. Yes.
1: Yes. So, but that's okay now. I can do a little bit myself, much less than what I used to. But to provide that guidance and mentoring is something I've really learned to enjoy and say that's my job now I'm more senior I've been more successful and people are looking for me to provide that mentorship and uh, it's a delight to see others uh, succeed is a very much part of my job so perhaps there's a, a staged answer to your question so a scientist who is junior needs to concentrate on their own things that much more. Mm. A scientist who's more senior has to broaden their outlook to ensure they are more inclusive of others around them. It's a more supportive role. Mm. Yeah. I don't think if that makes yeah. good enough sense. No, I like that.
0: Yeah. What's well, been what would be one of the most exciting days of your career
1: that you can recall? Uh, the most exciting is, uh, and I still remember the day, and as does uh, my wife, um, because uh, what happened was, so originally I took on this task and I saw there was an opportunity. So science is very opportunistic. I think I said that yes. a bit earlier. And uh, and you have to find your niche. And you have to discover, you know, when I took on the role and I, took on, I changed fields and I understood what was missing, and I thought, well, I'm going to develop a theory whose validity is going to be independent of the projectile energy. Now, that might not mean very much but um, to those listening, but it was clear that there was a, a, f- a fundamental flaw in the way the field was at the time that I started. And I thought, well, here's an opportunity for me to make a mark for myself and developed au new, U-butte uh, uh, brand-new computational theory that will do away with this particular weakness, that it would be valid at uh, all uh, energies and uh, hopefully it will explain the existing discrepancies between theory and experiment. So I had a goal. Nothing more important for a scientist than to have a goal. Yep. So I worked hard for two or three years. I developed the theory that I thought was it. right? And I applied it to the existing discrepancies between theory and experiment, and I got the same results as other theory that still disagreed with experiment. And I was distraught. After all that hard work, I made no progress, it would seem. Now, it turned out later that uh, rather than giving up, I applied it to other areas so these so the most fundamental collision system would be an electron on atomic hydrogen it's a three body problem we have two electrons and a proton. It is relatively simple could not uh, get agreement with experiment for a s- simple excitation process. but then I thought, well. Okay, well what other information do I get from this? And another aspect of an electron collides with an atomic hydrogen is that if the initial electron has enough energy, it will ionise the atom. It will knock out the electron and create a a free three-body situation of a free proton and two free electrons. Now I knew this was uh, uh, theoretically a very difficult problem unsolved And, you know, it wasn't something... This was like leaping to the next stage. Yes. But I got access to four computers to run uh, at the same time, different energy, and I plotted a very accurate experiment that had error bars of only about 3%. And uh, after several hours, I would get four points coming up and I had to span from the threshold, which is about 13.6 eV, to about 1,000 eV. So it was going to take a lot of many, many hours for points to slightly come up on this. So I plotted all the experiment, but as every point came up, it was bang on top of experiment. And at one point, Anne still remembers. This is now 30 years ago. Yeah. I said, Anne, come and have a look at this. And she ran, what, what, what? And I showed her that as my points came up, they were all going right on top of experiment. And that told me, uh-oh, I am really discovered something here. Yeah. So having found, you know, after many more hours, many days, and every point coming onto this curve, I actually suggested the original experiment that I was comparing with was wrong. Right. And it should be redone. And in fact, the ABC made a program for what the, it used to be called a c- catalyst, and, uh, and they called me the Electron Man." And uh, you can go on YouTube and look at my name and you can find this program. They ta- made a, a discussion about this particular uh, progress, how you know, it's not too often a the theorists will say experiment is wrong. Right. But sure enough, you know, roughly five or six years later, new experiments were performed. And they showed that indeed the theory was right all along, uh, but in having developed this theory, it became the world-leading theory because I addressed the very original goal that I started with. Right. Yeah. Super. Yeah. So that's the most exciting time. But there've been, you know, other exciting. But it's hard, that one's hard to beat because it's first. Yes. You no. Know? But uh, other things, uh, many other really wonderful things have happened since. So, you know, having a theorist who's so confident of their calculations to the extent that when there's discrepancy with experiment, they will say, no, that experiment needs to be revisited. That doesn't happen often. So in my career, it's happened about five or six times now. Right. But on every occasion, we were able to show that the experiment was uh, less accurate than what they thought they had some. In fact, there's was a paper published just last year. Oh, uh, in fact, just today, I just realised uh, another example uh, is going to be published very shortly in the Physical Review A as a rapid communication where yeah. we've made this prediction for a molecule. Hmm. So a really exciting time, this time to be shared by my students. Yes. They're the ones who did the hard work of uh, developing our theory for electron scattering on the hydrogen molecule, much more complicated than the hydrogen atom and we found that our calculations were a factor of two smaller than the benchmark experiments that have been used for about the last 40 years as the correct results. We were a factor of two less. So we got in touch about a year ago with some experimentalists who developed a new technique for performing that kind of measurement and they discovered complete agreement with our calculations just by coincidence this morning I came in and it just says out there that the paper has been accepted for publication as a rapid communication in the Physical Review A. So it's very good timing. Indeed. <laughs>
0: Superb. Yeah. What does the um, next three to five years hold for Igor? Uh,
1: well, I'm, I have been head of department for seven years and yet this year is a new beginning for us. So we have an incredible cohort of students. We have about 50 students whose median ATA is about 95. It will completely change the dynamics of the department by the large number of outstanding students that we have. Furthermore, the reason we have these brilliant staff who are able to serve their needs is because we will be at Curtin building the world's largest radio telescope, the Square Kilometre Array. Oh, up in... uh, Near Geraldton. Near, within three hours. Yes, yes, Yeah. So that's phenomenal. So the opportunities for the students, the opportunities for the younger staff here are just phenomenal. It's just such an exciting time. I personally... It's not my area of strength, radio astronomy is not where I'm at, but that's not my job anymore. No. My job is now to enable others to take advantage of these incredible opportunities that are here in our own backyard. So, for me, uh, there will be the aspects of my own field, which is very exciting in terms of this cancer therapy. So, I'm right in the midst and with my colleagues and our you know, graduate students in supporting Australia's first proton therapy facility. That's going to be built in Adelaide, an interesting story because that, you know how I mentioned that the protons can deliver their destructive energy just to the tumor and not to the healthy cells. That's based on a Nobel Prize given to the work that was done in Adelaide By a father and son team of um, uh, William and Lawrence Bragg. 1915. They showed that with heavy particles, uh, their destructive energy is delivered right towards the end of their travel. And now it's called the Bragg Peak. Right. And uh, so, for very good reason, (laughs) or somehow it is, uh, uh, you know uh well, I, I do know, delightful coincidence. I, I don't know that hundred years later, the advantage of taking the Bragg peak to use it for cancer therapy will also be done in Adelaide. Excellent. Right, and will be called the, probably the Bragg uh, Cancer Centre or something mm. like that. They'll have Bragg in rights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Late joke. Yes. And um, and uh, so our research, my own personal research, and that of my colleagues and students will thrive as it ever as it always has Mm. but it is so much more exciting to be a part of a team that will enable outstanding research to be happening here in Western Australia and this will change Perth forever we will become like a university town because the amount of industry to build This thing is phenomenal. It's huge, Mm. so it will be supported by fantastic industry, engineering. We need computer scientists. We need mathematicians. We need electrical and communication engineers. We have a double degree. I refer to it as the Ska degree, Square Kilometre A degree, because it combines electrical engineering with the mathematics, computer science, and the physics. So the students who will our top graduates from that degree can choose. Do they want to go into building? Do they want to go into analysis? Do they want to go into in, in observation? Do they want to go into explaining? Or all combinations yes. of those. So it's just a phenomenal uh, a delight to have the privilege of having that opportunity to really change WA for the better and to really to put us on the world map in a big way. I mean, we already had a wonderful opportunity with the um, America's Cup, you know, in the 80s. But that's going to be quiet. We have a wonderful stadium now, fantastic. Hopefully our hospitals will be uh, working well uh, now that they have sorted some of these things out, and that's all great. But to complement that with the world-leading science, Mm. what an opportunity.
0: Mm. Superb. And something other than um digging up molecules and uh, look, exporting them
1: yeah uh, but you know to be truthful even the mining industry is phenomenal in the technology yeah. that it has in fact something people don't realize but the western australian school of mines is ranked number two in the world and here it is the curtain uh, based at kalgoorlie uh, so, number one School of Mines is the Colorado School of Mines, right, in the United States. But here we have number two in the world. And we don't promote it, but we should. Hmm. Because, again, they use the latest technologies. You know, people are talking about uh, driverless cars. The mining industry has been way ahead yeah. for a long time in that space. Right? So, a lot to be learned uh, f- from that area, from those technologies. So um, we have capacity to be successful on so many fronts. And we're just adding one more. Mm. Science, computing, mathematics, uh, you know, electrical engineering. Fantastic. Build the world's largest radio telescope. How brilliant is that? It's
0: very exciting.
1: Yeah, on top of all of this. And of course, it will be done in conjunction with the engineers and the mining industries, because they will all get engaged. You have to have the resources to build this thing,
0: right? Mm. You
1: know? And uh, and you have to have the people to build this thing. You have to have manufacturing to build this. So it's it's it's. This is why I love being a scientist. Uh, it is so constructive, so positive, and it's about taking everybody with you. Yeah, superb. Who has been the biggest sort
0: of influence or mentor to you in your time?
1: Oh, the biggest influence. Was the person,
0: piece, what was the best piece of advice they gave you?
1: Well, the biggest influence in my life, of course, is my wife, Anne. Mm. You know, you, you can't. You know, We've spent 35 years together. Yes. We've you know, raised two children together. A lot of difficulties you deal with together. And, uh, and during her working life, Anne's salary was always twice mine. And uh, so she is not only the kindest, most wonderful person on the planet, but she's one of the smartest people on the planet <laughs> yeah. as well. So that is the biggest contributor by a long way. Uh, but my teachers, of course, my uh, the scientists who are lecturers, uh, who have taken me under their wing, of course, are major, major uh, contributors. Uh, my colleagues, uh, and even students, uh, to some degree. Because, you know, if you have lots of different students, they all have their own difficulties, issues, that they have to deal with, and you have to help them and, and you know, adjust to their situations. And you learn a lot about yourself through dealing with difficulties that other people uh, have. So you know I said coming back to that wonderful expression it takes a village to raise a child it was a village that raised me um you know I lost my father at to much too young an age so the last time I saw him and I still see his face is when I waved goodbye at the airport leaving uh, Leningrad at the age of 11 I never saw him alive again um you know but you know he, uh, my grandparents uh, my mother, who, uh, you, know, you know, family who sacrificed enormous amount. Not that they could have anticipated the tragedy that would unfold behind, uh, but they did it for me to get me out of what was the Soviet Union in 1972. And I have very conf- conflicting feelings about that. I'm forever grateful because it's created an unbelievable life. And I'm forever guilty for the tragedy that unfolded in the background. Mm. You know, I have to reconcile it. So, you know, my, uh, you know, my grandfather perished in Stalinist camps. He never saw his own, my father being born um, because he was denounced as a bad communist. Uh, it's horrific mm. what happened in those times. Um, so, you know, I rationalise it at... Um, um, you know, I have to be happy enough for my grandfather, yeah f- for my father. Right. <laughs> and I've done You're that job <laughs> and I've done that job. Yeah. You know? My children are happy, my wife is happy, you know. So yeah. Um I'm an emotional person of course as nice. you can tell. But um it's what's made me as well. Yeah.
0: If you could um go back to um probably when you were about twelve and you're trying to make sense of Australia in English mm-hmm. and all of that, if you could go back from where you are now and mm-hmm. give that little boy a piece of advice in whatever language it was yeah. what yeah. what would you what would you say?
1: Hang in there. You know, um yeah, I uh, uh No, don't change anything. Deal with the obstacles in front of you as they arise. You have to learn the English. You have to go through this. Um you have to overcome the bullying that happens at school because you're the one kid who can't speak different, yeah. Right? It was interesting. It was interesting hierarchy I learned at high schools, at primary school. Now you had the Australian kids at the top, who would beat up on the Greek and Italian kids. The Greek and Italian kids would beat up on the Yugoslavs. <laughs> the Yugoslav would beat up uh, beat up on the one Russian kid. <laughs> Very strange. You know, it was not something I saw. I imagined back in the Soviet system, it, you know, we didn't have the diversity of nationality, but. As kids in many places, if bullying was, uh, you know, some unsupervised kids will engage in, you know, it's the Lord of the Flies scenario, right? And um, so this is I got to see it from the other side. Uh, I saw it as you know I wasn't one engaging in it as, as a kid, but I did not know what it's like to be a victim of it. I had to deal with that. Um, now it wasn't for very long, uh, but it's left its mark. Mm. So uh, it's made me stronger. You know, again, going back to what doesn't kill you is good for you. Indeed. Right. So, so in that sense, so uh, that's what I would say, and uh, you know, and I'd give the same advice to the younger people now. Don't shirk or go, go away from things that are difficult. Embrace the challenge. Overcome it. Mm. Because confidence, self-esteem, comes from overcoming adversity. People will say, you know, I'm a very confident person. But, well, I've had a lot of adversity to Mm. overcome. And now I have confidence that I can overcome any more adversity Mm. that may come my way. And face the unknown. Face the unknown, yeah. Have the courage to face the unknown. To do things that are a bit different. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, I guess uh, whatever you know, I have no opportunity to go back and uh, give that kind of advice to myself, but I have the opportunity to give that advice to the younger generations now, and I do. That's my job. Mm. Mm, delightful part of my job. Indeed. Yeah. Well, Igor, thank you so much for
0: today. Mm-hmm. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been full of energy, full mm-hmm. of emotion. Um, it's been fascinating to understand physics a lot more. Mm-hmm. It's been fascinating to understand the world of physics around it to research, mm-hmm. and and just to sit with you and your enthusiasm mm-hmm. and your openness is is um, yeah, it's quite something. I've I've really really enjoyed it. I well, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciated uh, the conversation and. Uh, um it's uh, it's nice to be able to put signs in perspective that is done by people yes and every person has their own story and uh, it is a mistake to separate those stories from everything else because it makes the whole yes right and uh, and it's it's good that uh, if you know one, we can communicate to the world that everything we do is social everything we do we do anything that good is done in the world is comes from uh, people working cooperatively together. There was a lovely line you know um, Stephen Hawking passed away uh, uh, recently and apparently he had a wonderful quote that I really enjoyed and said everything that is good in life is comes from people talking to each other. Everything that is terrible in life comes from people not talking to each other. Yes. Very, very wise sentiment and certainly one that I share. And it's good to talk. Thank you for yeah. the opportunity. Indeed. There you go. Thank you for today. Great pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. you.